Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. Please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I wanted to uh, share with you that whenever someone tells me that they love God and that they love Jesus and that he is inside of them, um, you know, that Jesus lives in their heart, one of the questions that I would frequently ask them is, uh, what church are you a part of? And one of the main responses that I get is something something to the extent of, uh, well, I don't go to church. I've been hurt by the church. Or um, I'm done with the church. The church are just a bunch of hypocrites. And generally speaking, my response is, you know, I try to kindly explain the importance of being a part of a church. I, I try to kindly explain the relationship between Jesus and his bride, the church. Right? One of the things that I like to say, you, I'm sure you've heard me say it before, is that if someone were to say, I love Jesus, but, I'm, but I don't like the church, would be the same as, as someone telling me, hey, Ben, I really like you. You should come over to my house. Please don't bring your wife, though. I don't like her. Right? That's, that's kind of the, the relationship uh, between Christ and the church. In fact, it's even deeper than my relationship between me and my wife. And so, you know, generally, that's kind of my, my response. I try to encourage these people to, to be a part of a local church. But at the same time, I do think, and I think that we need to recognize that many people have indeed been hurt by the church. Many people have, uh, have been uh, hurt by certain people from the church. And I think that the main reason why people are hurt by the church is because oftentimes the church, we have this awful tendency of exalt our ministries and our gifts and our institutions and the things that we do above love. We as a church, we have this tendency of idolizing our ministry or idolizing our gifts and separating them from love and then exercising those gifts and performing those ministries apart from love. And so what happens when we do that is that people are offended. People are hurt. We treat people poorly because sometimes they get in the way of our ministry. You realize how crazy that sounds, right? The ministry should be towards the people, but sometimes we have this tendency of thinking that people are getting in the way of our ministry. So let me just, you know, give you a few examples that I'm not, I'm not necessarily talking about anyone here. I'm mostly uh, gathering from my experience in the past, but think about the Sunday school director lady, right? Oftentimes it's a lady, could be a guy too, but oftentimes it's a lady who is so into this ministry of Sunday school and organizing it that when some event interferes with, with the ministry of the Sunday school or when one of the classrooms is left dirty because someone else used the classroom, then she gets really, really angry and you know just loses it with the people that, that messed with her schedule. Or think about the person who is in charge of the cleaning of the building. You know, while this is great, they are serving, they're cleaning the building. But what happens when a bunch of kids walk in from, you know, outside it's raining, tracking mud all over the place? Well, all of a sudden, it's not so much about service. It's about like, ah, you know, you want to shake the kid and be like, why did you do that? Think about the music team leader who becomes upset and mistreats the AV people because they missed one of the slides. Or think about the elder or the pastor who abuses others, abuses his leadership, and becomes angry at his 
leadership team or are the church because someone dared to interrupt his precious sermon or because someone dared to overstep their God-given authority, right? So that's what happens when we put our ministries, we put our gifts, right? The gift of teaching, the gift of administration, uh, the gift of service, the gift of hospitality above love. That's what happens when we separate those gifts from love. And so as Paul is talking about the spiritual gifts, and as we are looking into this topic of spiritual gifts, he takes a quick pause from the idea of earnestly desiring the higher gifts to talking about a more excellent way. He cannot continue talking about spiritual gifts like prophecy and speaking in tongues and and service and hospitality before addressing a very, very important topic, the topic of love. We're talking about spiritual gifts. We're learning about spiritual gifts, but when we do this, we want to make sure that we put the spiritual gifts in their rightful place. We need to make sure that we understand that spiritual gifts are amazing. They're really good. They're given by God. They're, They're given through the Holy Spirit to us, and they are given for the building up of the body. but that it is possible to exercise those spiritual gifts without love. And when we do that, we become nothing. That's, that's literally what it says. So let's pray and let's look into this topic. God, we thank you for, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that we wouldn't be able to love if it weren't for your love for us. We thank you that you loved us first. We thank you that you gave your son Jesus for us. And that in a perfect display of love, he gave his life for us. And God, I pray that as we look into this passage, we would have you, we would have your son Jesus in mind as we go through this passage, as we look at the description of love, that we would see your son Jesus, that we would glorify him, that we would be so thankful for his sacrifice and his work for us. God, please guide us by your Holy Spirit. Please uh, lead me in the things that you want me to say. Please, uh, Fill each one of us today to understand your word. Please convict us of our sin. Please remind us of the gospel. Help us apply the gospel to our lives, to our failures, to our sins, to our shortcomings. Please encourage us with your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we look into this topic of spiritual gifts, we've talked about how the spiritual gifts are for the building up of the body, how the the spiritual gifts are given by the Holy Spirit, how they are given sovereignly. And Paul, in chapter 12, verse 31, is about to get into the topic of the higher gifts. And so in verse 31, he says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. And so he commands them to desire the spiritual gifts. In fact, he's going to go forward in, 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 verse, in chapter 14. He's going to go on to say, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So even though the spiritual gifts are given sovereignly by the Holy Spirit, we are also commanded to seek these gifts. But Paul doesn't, is not going to stop. Sorry, Paul is not going to continue Go, talking about the spiritual gifts and seeking them and prophesy, prophe, uh, prophecy and, and speaking in tongues before he starts talking about love, before he puts those gifts in the right place. And so let's read the passage, uh, chapter 13, actually starting in verse 31 at the end. And I will show you 
a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable, irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when, he, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of God. Why, why is love so important? Why is love more excellent than spiritual gifts? Well, we could think about the fact that love is the greatest commandment, right? God says that the great, or, or when, you know, when Jesus asks about the greatest commandment, he says, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Loving is the greatest commandment. God himself is described as love. God, right? God, it says God is love. It doesn't say God is hope. It doesn't say God is prophecy. It doesn't say anything else. It says God is love. Love is one of the main evidences that God's presence is among us. A couple of weeks ago, I said that spiritual gifts are an evidence that the presence of God is among us. Spiritual gifts are an evidence that the Spirit is at work among us. Spiritual gifts are an evidence that the kingdom of God has broken in. But I also said that they are not the main evidence. They are not the only evidence and they are not the main evidence. Love, however, is a very, very clear evidence that God is in our midst. In 1 John chapter 4, John says, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. In other words, no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God is in our midst. God is in us. And by extension, people can see God in our love for one another. Jesus likewise tells his disciples in John 13, 34, A new commandment I give you, I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So if, if someone were to walk in here and see that we are performing spiritual gifts, that someone is prophesying, that someone is speaking in tongues, that someone is serving, that someone is doing all of these things, someone is teaching, they might say, oh, wow, you know, God is in their midst. But if they see that we treat each other poorly, if we see that we shout at one another, if we see that we uh, hold grudges against one another, they're going to be like, this looks more like, a, like they're doing it for show. But it doesn't really look like God is in their midst. 
But if someone walks in and say, we don't have as an impressive of a gamut of spiritual gifts, but people see that we are loving one another. People see real love. People see the way we treat each other. People see love as it is uh, defined in, in this passage. People are going to be more likely to say, wow, there's something different about them. God is. God is in their midst. Spiritual gifts are extremely important for the life of the church. Otherwise, we wouldn't be studying this topic. But if we, if we look into spiritual gifts, if, if we think about, okay, what is my spiritual gift? How can I practice it? And we get, you know, really into spiritual gifts and try to learn all of them and maybe try to pray for all of the gifts and try to practice some of these gifts. But we have not loved then we're doing it wrong. Because according to Paul, it doesn't matter how many spiritual gifts you have. If you have three or five spiritual gifts minus love, you end up with zero. And so Paul is going to give a couple of, a couple of um, arguments here for why love is so important. Number one, because Spiritual gifts minus love equals zero. And number two, because spiritual gifts will end. Spiritual gifts will not last forever, but love will never end. Love will continue. So in other words, spiritual gifts are temporary. They have a temporary purpose, but love is going to continue on and on and on for eternity. The world can produce some of these, not necessarily the spiritual gifts, but counterfeits to spiritual gifts. But the love cannot produce the love that only God provides, right? So, you know, in fact, I think that one of the biggest problems that, that exists in the debate between, you know, are the gifts still continue, continuing today versus uh, some of the gifts have ceased, I think that one of the main problems in this, in this argument is a lack of love. Because those over here who say, oh yeah, they continue and look at us speaking in tongues and prophesying and you are not spiritual at all. You know, sometimes they're showing a lack of love. But those over here who say, oh, you guys are crazy. What you're doing is not even from the Holy Spirit. You're allowing demonic activity in your, in your midst. They're not. They're not speaking in love either. And I think that even this debate would be Maybe not settle, but it would be at least more uh, Christian if we were to use love. And I think the same goes for any other debate over doctrine. So remember, Paul's point is spiritual gifts minus love equals zero. So let's go, let's go into that point. I think that one of the things that were going on in the, in the church of Corinth if you remember reading the, the, the letter to the Corinthians, it seems like there was a lot of division between the Corinthians, right? Remember that some of them said, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I'm of Peter. The more, supposedly the more spiritual ones were saying, I am of Jesus. But in reality, they were all divided amongst themselves. And so it seems to me that here, it, when, when Paul talks in chapter 12, now concerning spiritual gifts, actually the word gifts is not even... Um, in, in, in the original text, it just says, now concerning the spiritual. So one could say concerning the spiritual ones. So it's almost like the Corinthians were saying, hey, Paul, who's more spiritual? Those of us who speak in tongues or those who, who don't speak in tongues? Right? It seems like tongues and prophecy are at the, at the you know, forefront of Paul's uh, exhortation here for the Corinthians. And so... I wouldn't be surprised if the division was that those who spoke in tongues were more inclined to the mystical, to the ecstatic, to the, to the unexplainable experiences of the Holy Spirit. And then those, and this is going to be surprising for some of you, those who prophesied, they were more rationally, intellectually oriented. And we're going to see that in chapter, in, in chapter 14. Paul himself says, if you speak in tongues, but there's no one to interpret, then no one can understand what you're saying. But if you prophesy, 
you're actually speaking intelligible words. People can actually understand what you're saying. And so my guess is that the church was divided between those that sought the mystical, the ecstatic, and those who sought, who sought the rational and the intellectual side of things. And so the, intre- the, the thing that I love about this passage, or one of the things I love about this passage, is that Paul leaves no, no stone unturned. He, he, he goes for everyone, right? So he starts and says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, so he's speaking hyper- uh, uh, in hyperbole here, like he's exaggerating. He's just saying, if I speak in the tongues of men, in the tongues of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So those of you that, that you know, claim to be so spiritual because you are always speaking in tongues, and even if you spoke in the tongues of angels, and even if you did all of these things, if you do it without love, You're just, you're just an, an annoying noise. You're just a, a, a noisy gong. And so the, the, the ones, the more rationally minded ones were like, hey, 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 that's nice. But then Paul is like, well, but if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Nothing. I mean, that's, that's very absolute, right? He's not saying, if you do this, well, the gift becomes nothing. No, no, no. He's not talking about the gift. He's talking about the person. God can still edify the church through the gift. God can still build up the church through the gift of prophecy, whether you're doing it right or, or, or not. But if you do this without love, even if you have this amazing understanding of all the mysteries of God, even if you have all the knowledge in the world, even if you have all the prophetic powers, if you have not love, if I have not love, I am nothing. He talks about faith, right? So this is, this is not the kind of faith that saves a person because every believer has, has salvific faith. But he's talking about a special kind of faith, a, a, a spiritual gift, which is faith, which it, it could move mountains. It could perform miracles. It could, uh, it's that kind of faith that, may, that prays, knowing that God is going to respond to that prayer. It doesn't matter if you have that kind of faith. If you have not love, you're nothing. And so I imagine those sitting in the back who are kind of not in the debate, right? They're not with the speaking in tongues. They're not with the rational uh, wisdom prophets. And they're like, come on, you guys. Like, don't you get it? It's not, about, it's not about mystical displays of the Spirit. It's not about understanding all the doctrine. It's about radical service. It's about sacrificial generosity. It's about giving all of yourself. It's about becoming a martyr. And so, you know, they're probably feeling really good, but Paul is like, um, verse three, if I give away all I have, I mean, what can be more generous than that? The way all you have. And if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So there's no escaping this. It doesn't matter what you do to serve the body of Christ. If you have not love, there is no recompense. You are nothing. There is no gain. You don't receive a a heavenly reward. Again, God can still use that and he will build his church in spite of us. But we become nothing if we have not love. I've been reading this book as I, as I study this passage. I, I, it's 
really, really good. I recommend it by D.A. Carson called Showing the Spirit. And he focuses on 1 Corinthians 14 through 13. And there was a quote here that I just, uh, I just felt like I needed to read. So he says, so basically he is summarizing in his own words, he's summarizing Paul's thought and he says, you, you who think that because you speak in tongues, you are so spiritual, you who prove your large endowment from the Holy Spirit by exercising the gift of prophecy, you must understand that you have overlooked that it is, sorry, you must understand that you have overlooked what is most important. By themselves, your spiritual gifts attest nothing spiritual about you. And you who prefer to attest your rich privilege in the Holy Spirit by works of philanthropy, you must learn that philanthropy, apart from Christian love, says nothing about your experience with God. You remain spiritually bankrupt, a spiritual nothing, if love does not characterize your exercise of whatever grace gift God has assigned you. If Paul, were, if Paul were addressing the modern church, perhaps he would extrapolate further. You Christians who prove your spirituality by the amount of theological information you can cram into your heads, I tell you that such knowledge by itself proves nothing. And you who affirm the Spirit's presence in your meetings because there is a certain style of worship, whether formal, formal or stately or exuberant or and spontaneous, if, you worship, if your worship patterns are not expressions of love, you are spiritually bankrupt. You who insist that the speaking in tongues attests a second work of the Spirit, a baptism of the Spirit, I tell you that if love does not characterize your life, there is not evidence of even a first work of the Spirit. In none of these instances does Paul depreciate spiritual gifts but he refuses to recognize any positive assessment of any of them unless the gift is discharged in love. Principally, therefore, any particular gift is dispensable so far as spiritual profit or attestation of the Spirit's presence is concerned. But love is indispensable. So what is love? What is this love that, that we need so badly? What is this love that really makes the use of the spiritual gifts count for something? Well, Paul goes on to describe love. And more, more than defining love, he is describing it and, and he is giving a very practical definition of love. He's basically telling us what love does, not just not, not just defining love, you know, ideologically, but he is defining it by explaining, okay, this is what love looks like. And so he says, love is patient. And so I'm going to go into a, a really a, a brief description or just a comment of, of each one of these. And I wish that I, that I could spend more time um, going into, into each one of them, but there is only so much time in my week and I couldn't really get into, into all of the details here. But he, this is my encouragement as we look into them. My encouragement is that as we read these descriptions of love, that we think of two things. One of them is that we picture ourselves exercising the gift that God has given us in this manner. That we picture ourselves serving the body of Christ, serving the church, uh, being with one another in light of this description of love. And secondly, one of the things I would have loved to do is to actually go through every single word and link it to a particular episode in the life of Jesus. And I, I have to apologize, I didn't do that. But I would encourage you that as we read this description of love, we would have Jesus in mind. 
Because really, he is the ultimate display of what love looks like. His life in the Gospels, his, his life as it is described in the whole of Scripture, is the ultimate display of love. So remember, let's read this thinking about how we can use this or, or how, how we can exercise our gifts in this manner, in this kind of love. But also, most importantly, let us see Jesus in this description of love. So he says, love is patient. So this patience, more than love that kind of just is really good at waiting, you know, if, if you are waiting for someone and they arrive a little bit late, then you're just patient. No, that, I don't think that's what he means. Rather, love is patient in that it doesn't matter how many wrongs it receives, it doesn't just explode. It doesn't pay back. It is patient. It, 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 it um, just receives evil and doesn't really pay back. And that is linked with the next one. Love is kind. And so this means that love, instead of paying back when wronged, it actually pays back with kindness. Instead of paying back with evil, it pays back with kindness. Love does not envy. So I think this is one of the main issues here with the Corinthians, that maybe some of them were envious of the more, you know, impressive gifts, right? Maybe some of them were like, man, I wish I could speak in tongues. I guess I would receive a little revelation from God that I could share some prophecy. But love does not envy. But love also doesn't boast. And so even if you are extremely gifted, remember that these gifts are from God. They are gifts of grace. Remember that the word itself for gift comes from the word grace. So these are gifts that you have received. And so we do not boast about our gifts or about anything else. Love is not arrogant. Love is not proud. One of the things I've come to appreciate in the relationships that I, that I have with people that there is mutual love is that we can have open conversations. We can, have, we can even exhort one another. We can uh, talk about maybe some things that we need to improve. But because there is love, then there is no fear that I'm going to hurt someone else's pride or someone is going to hurt my pride. There is no fear that what I say is going to be taken on the wrong note. And there's no fear that what the person is saying, I'm, I'm taking it in an arrogant kind of way. And, and when, when that kind of relationship, when that kind of love is present, I think that's one of the most beautiful things. Can you imagine if, the whole church, if in the whole church we were like that? We gave each other the benefit of the doubt. We were not arrogant. We were not prideful. We were not boastful. We were not envious of one another, but rather we would be patient with one another. Love is not rude. So this word rude is the same word that is used in, in chapter 7, verse 36, when Paul is describing a, 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 a man's attitude towards a young woman when he is provoking her affections but then decides not to marry her. So that gives you an idea of what rudeness is, right? It's just something that is completely uncalled for. It's something that is not appropriate. It's something that is um, disrespectful. And so it says here that love is not like that. Love is not disrespectful. Love considers others. It does not insist on its own way. In other words, love doesn't seek its own interest, right? So love doesn't say, no, we have to do it my way. It's my way or the highway. No. Love actually listens to the others, to the other opinions and says, oh, you know, that actually sounds like a good idea. Or maybe, you know what? In my mind, that doesn't even sound that good of an idea, but I'm not going to insist in my own way. One way that, that uh, Carson 
explain this kind of not insisting on its own way. He said something like, love doesn't merely, love doesn't, okay, sorry. Love does not only not seek what is his, what belongs to, to it, but it's even prepared to give up for the sake of others what is rightfully entitled to. Love is not irritable. In other words, love is not easily angered. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers offenses. It is not touchy. It is not, and again, quoting Carson, it is not, it doesn't have a blistering temper barely hidden beneath the surface of a respectable facade just waiting for an offense, real or imagined, at which to take umbrage, at which to explode. Love is not irritable. It is not resentful. So when damage is done, when, act, when real damage is done, it doesn't, just, it doesn't keep track of the evils done. We forgive them and we forget. We cover them with love. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Love does not rejoice in evil. In other words, love is not hypocritical, right? Love doesn't, um, doesn't come here on Sundays and perform all of these spiritual gifts and then goes home and rejoices at evil things that it watches on TV or on the street or whatever. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. And we know very well that truth, a lot of the times, is, can be painful. But love rejoices with the truth. And so verse 7, I believe, is, is more of a summary. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Not that love is gullible, but love is has a, a, a kind of hopeful expectation, right? Gives people the benefit of the doubt. Love hopes all things, endures all things. One phrase that I read a while ago and stuck with me, I don't even know who it is from, but says that mature believers are easily edified. Mature believers are easily edified. So I almost feel like it's a good, a good summary of this, of this last phrase. Love is easily edified. Love is not, you know, critical of everything and everyone. And love is not always just, love is not seeking always for the, the wrong in the one thing that everyone said. But instead, recognizes the wrong and maybe pushes it aside, but says, hey, in general, this was actually really good. In general, this actually edified me. So there's the description of love. And so Paul then gives his second argument. And his second argument is that spiritual gifts are temporary, but love never ends. So think about this. When we are in the presence of God, we are not going to need the gift of prophecy. We're not going to need the gift of revelation because we're going to be right there face to face. We're going to see him as he is. We're not going to need the gift of tongues because we're going to be right there in his presence. We're going to be able to speak to him. Jesus, our mediator, is going to be right there with us. And that's that's... Basically what Paul is saying, love never ends. Love, love, we will have love when we are there. In fact, our love will continue to be perfected. We will be with the source of love himself. Of course, we're going to be loving when we are in the presence of God. When we are in the new heavens and the new earth. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Not that we're going to be agnostics. No, we, we will 
know things, but knowledge as a gift will no longer be a thing because we will be right there with the source of knowledge. We will understand God in a way better way that we understand him right now. Verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So right now, our knowledge of God is incomplete, is partial. Our prophesying is incomplete, is partial. No one can come and say, I just received this revelation of exactly, exactly how everything is going to be in the presence of God. And, you know, might as well just close your Bibles right now because I have it all. No. Right now, everything that we have in terms of spiritual gifts is partial. It is not complete. But when the perfect comes, the partial or the incomplete will pass away. Now, I think that in, in this particular section, we need to address a theological topic. So remember that we've been talking about the discussion between the cessationist side and the continuationist side. And remember that the cessationists would say that the spirit, certain spiritual gifts have ceased. That's where they get the name for cessationists. And the continuationists would say that all of the spiritual gifts continue today. And so... This is one of the main passages that cessationists would use to say that the gifts of prophecy, the gifts of tongues, the gift of revelation, and really any other gift that seems uh, maybe more mystical to us has ceased. And, and basically, they, you know, one, the argument goes, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. So they would say, hey, see, like it says right here that some of these gifts are going to come to an end. And so the argument continues that when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And so there are a couple of different arguments that, that they make for what the perfect is. And, and some of them would say, Perfection, when Paul is talking about perfection, he is referring to the finished canon of Scripture. So basically, according to this view, when people, when, when Paul was saying that the spiritual, those spiritual gifts were going to cease, they were going to cease once the Bible was completed the way we have it today. I think that argument is a little weak because nowhere else in Scripture does it refer to the completed canon of Scripture as perfection. Um, and, and sorry, I'm not going to go into all of the arguments, but if you want to talk a little bit more about it, I'm happy to talk to you afterwards. Some other people say perfection refers to when we are more spiritually mature and not just we as individuals, but the church. So basically they said when, and, and it goes hand in hand, when the Bible was being written, when the apostles were still alive, they needed some of these spiritual gifts because they, they still didn't have the finished revelation of God and they, the, the church was also in a immature kind of stage. And so the argument goes, now that we have the completed canon of scripture, and now that the church is in a more mature uh, uh, situation, we don't need these spiritual gifts. Uh, I don't agree with those arguments. To me, it seems to make a lot more sense that perfection, especially according to the context, is referring to the time after the second coming of Jesus. And, and notice why I think uh, this. It says, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly. So I think that no matter how mature the church is before the second coming of the Lord Jesus, we still see him like in a mirror. It's kind of dimly. We don't, we don't see him fully the way that he is. I mean, we, we see him really well through scripture, right? I don't want to diminish 
the authority of Scripture. I don't want to diminish that we can know God the way that he wants us to know him now through Scripture. But we do not see him fully as he is. We don't see him face to face, right? It says, uh, verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Face to face, that particular phrase in the Old Testament is almost a formula for seeing God directly. One of the more, uh, uh, there are multiple passages, but one of the passages that maybe help us understand this is when, when it said that Moses was, it, Moses in, in Exodus 33, I believe, it says that Moses saw God face to face. Let me just read it to you so that I get the quote right. Exodus 33, 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp. Uh, sorry, verse 11. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. So this idea of seeing face to face, it, it seems to me like it's talking more about being in the presence of God. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully. Would any of us dare to say that right now because we are in a more mature stage and because we have the completed Bible, the completed canon of Scripture, would any one of us dare to say, I already know fully. I already see face to face. I wouldn't say so. <laughs> I would say that the coming of Christ and the stage of being in his presence is when we are going to be able to see fully or when we're going to be able to fully know him as he knows us, and we're going, when we are going to see him face to face. So that's, that's just an introduction to the discussion. There are many other arguments, and I don't want to bore you with, with this particular discussion. But I do think that it is important for us to, to know about this. And one of the things that I, that I want to clarify as well is that if you believe that some of the gifts have ceased, you can be a part of this church. We're not going to excommunicate you. We're not going to say, sorry, you can be a part of this church. And if you believe that, that all of the gifts continue, you can also be a part of this church. We believe that this is a secondary issue in the sense that you don't have to believe in the continuation of all of the gifts or some of the gifts for salvation. And you don't have to believe in the continuation of all of the gifts or some of the gifts for fellowship with one another. We can be uh, united as the body of Christ, even if we differ in this, particular, um, in this particular topic. But going back to the point, and really to close us up, the main point of Paul here is that love is the thing that will last. Love will outlast prophecy and speaking in tongues and the gift of knowledge and, and uh, the gift of revelation. And so, yes, it is really good to pursue spiritual gifts. In fact, God, uh, God through Paul, uh, gives us the exhortation to pursue those gifts. And so, because it is a command from God, we need to look into it, and we need to spend time look, uh, uh, pursuing those gifts. But the one thing that we need to understand today, before we move any further into our study of the spiritual gifts, is that love is going to be our main investment. It's going to be our long-term investment. If we pursue the spiritual gifts, if we become extremely proficient in teaching, in, in hospitality, in service, in speaking in tongues, in any spiritual gift, but have not love, we are nothing. And God in his mercy can continue to build this church but we are going to suffer. There will be division if we do not pursue love. There will be people being offended. There will be people leaving angry if we do not pursue love. And in the end, the long-term investment is love. Because when we are in the presence of God, when we see him face to face, we are going to continue 
loving our brothers and our sisters. And if we do not pursue love right now, there's going to be a lot of reconciliation that has to happen when we encounter several fellow believers. Because maybe we were really good at our spiritual gifts, but we were not so good at using them in love. I want to finish by reading from 1 John, 1 John chapter 4. Verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Let's pray. God, please help us to love one another. Because, God, because love is from you. Please help us to cultivate love, to pursue love the, the more excellent way. Help us to, to pursue the spiritual gifts, yes, to seek them, to pray for them. But that we would use them in love for the building up of your body. Thank you that you showed us what love is by sending your son, Jesus. Thank you that the love that you have for your son is now in us because of the work of Jesus and the work of the Spirit in our lives. God, I pray that we as a church would be known by our love, not so much by the incredible displays of the Spirit among us, although that would be nice too, but that we would be known by our love for you and our love for one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.